But here we are, Matthew 28. I looked at my notes. I've been wondering. We, uh, we're, we're, we're in Matthew 28. We started the Gospel of Matthew back in December of 2014. We, we had a, a small break last fall. As we were heading into the Christmas season, I realized that the passage was heading into the, the crucifixion and re- resurrection story. So I decided to call a timeout around last September to sort of get us lined up. So we just happened to be here at the resurrection story after a couple of years of being in Matthew. Um, it's, a, it's a great story. Um, I'm looking forward to going through it today. Uh, let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the account of Matthew that um, you have given to us. I thank you for this, uh, this man, Matthew, who is known as a sinner, who is known as a, a tax collector, who is, who is hated by the community, hated by his family, uh, really hated by all for the things that they did. And it's funny that we sit here on April 15th and it, we don't need to be reminded of how we feel about the taxmen uh, even today. And so, Lord, we thank you for how you transformed this guy's life We thank you for how you used him and his testimony um, to share with us the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for the years that we've been in this book, um, that Matthew was written from a Jewish perspective to a Jewish audience. Lord, throughout building the case from the Old Testament that Jesus indeed fulfilled prophecy over and over and over again. And so, Lord, as we look at the end of the story or near the end of the story, uh, we ask that you would. Um, help us uh, to remember to get lost in the story of this resurrection day. But Lord, may it not just be a story to us. May we encounter the risen Christ. May our lives be transformed. May we be set free from the bondage of sin. We thank you for all that Christ did on our behalf. We thank you that it was finished fully, completely. And we've been given righteousness through him by faith. We ask that you'd help us now. In Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. And there they will see me. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city 
and repeat, reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while you were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this gospel. We thank you for the truthfulness of the testimony of Matthew and the other disciples and those that encountered the risen Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us uh, to examine the evidence. Lord, that you would increase our faith or help us to come to faith in Christ. We thank you again that he accomplished everything on the cross for us. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. You know, I come to this story. This is, you know, the Easter story. It's sort of the, it's the jugular vein of Christianity. Um, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is everything. And, and without it, you have no Christianity. Um, during the first service, I had an old SEAL buddy show up. So it was kind of intimidating that he showed up. He's a non-believer. And I was like, oh, brother, that guy knew me back in the day. And the first service is much smaller than this service. And so I had to sit there and I can't avoid looking at him. And and in all honesty, if I reflect 25, 30 years ago, and I try to imagine going back to the gunner at that time and saying, gunner, I have a I have a hundred dollar quiz for you. Can you in one sentence explain what Easter is about? I don't think I could. I don't think in my early days, if I'm trying to imagine, I would have probably told you that it was about Easter bunnies and eggs with chocolate in them and tie-dyeing eggs and sort of uh, enjoying a meal with the family. Um, I don't give myself a whole lot of credit from back in those days. Um, the, the gospel wasn't made clear. I went to church. I saw the crucifixes. I you know, I had done my first communion. I'd gone through the sort of the religious motions, but really it was just religious motions. And, and I probably would have equated, not probably, I know for certain that I equated Jesus. I gave him as much authority as the Easter bunny or Santa Claus or any other thing that you sort of, we have. And so it's easy to come to this day, to come to this story and think, oh, this is just some nice fable or fairy tale, as Keith Green says in his songs, that we just sort of made up to make us feel good, to sort of um, to resolve some sort of conflict that we have in our hearts about the afterlife, which is interesting because when I look at my chickens, they seem to have no conflict about the afterlife <laughs> or, or my dogs or any other creature that I've encountered. But we as humans, there's something within us universally that that stirs that makes us wrestle with death and 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 there's a fear there because something within us tells us that death isn't the end and so when we come to this passage in first corinthians you don't have to turn there i've sort of spliced together a couple of verses first corinthians chapter 15 that whole chapter deals with the resurrection but in verses 13 and 14 17 and 20, it's it's on the screen behind me. This is written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was known as Saul. The Apostle Paul 
was a great Jewish man. He was a man that had great wealth, great prestige, uh, great knowledge. He was rising in the ranks of Judaism, certainly on track, possibly uh, to be a part of the Sanhedrin, possibly to be the high priest one day. Um, God called him to reach Gentiles. That's us, if you're not Jewish. It was genius of God uh, to think which person would you use to graft in non-Jews into the Jewish faith. You think, oh, you take a really good Gentile to do it, or that would have been my plan. But we've said, thank God enough that I'm not God. Um, But God uses the most elite, the most educated, the, the brightest mind of the day. And he uses this Jewish man to show from Scripture how it was God's plan all along that God has always been the God of all peoples. This is the man that following the death, burial, and resurrection of of Christ, he doubted. He wanted nothing to do with Christianity. In fact, he thought Christianity was a blasphemy, and so he hunted down Christians, had them arrested and drug uh, into the court system. The first martyr... In Acts, Stephen, it was at the not so much at the hands of, of Paul, but at his authority. We're told that they laid their coats at his feet, likely the number one guy in charge, uh, the senior ranking officer. That's who they would do. And it was by his authority that Stephen was stoned. And we're not talking about medicinal marijuana. We're talking about stoned rocks. He was crushed to death. And as he was, cru- as he was crushed, He shared with them the gospel from from creation to the end. And this had a moving effect in Paul's life. And then eventually Paul encountered the risen Christ on the way to the road to Damascus. And this man who had all the power, all the prestige, gave it away. And he he uses the term in Philippians saying that everything I had, this is, it was really a vile word, a word that I wouldn't even be allowed to say in church, but essentially manure. But think of a less clean word than manure. He said, this stuff is garbage to me. All I want to know is Christ crucified. He's everything. And in Corinthians 15, which I started earlier, what he writes there, he says, for if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. He continues and he says it again. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. So Paul makes this whole case about the resurrection. He says, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, number one, what I didn't read, he said, basically, we're liars. We're giving false testimony. We're, we're blaspheming against what the creator says. If he didn't raise my preaching, everything I stand for, everything I'm living for is useless. Don't be in church. You're wasting your time. Your faith is useless. There's no point. You're still dead in your transgressions and sins. But he continues, and in verse 20, he says, But in fact, Christ has been risen from the dead. And this man would stick to his story until he was ultimately killed for his story, as, of, as all of the apostles were, except for John. John's the only one that we say, oh, John wasn't killed for his faith. Well, that's only because when they boiled him in a vat of oil or water, he survived. And the, the, the Roman head guy, he he was so uh, superstitious that if you were to survive an execution, then you shouldn't kill that person. So he was exiled off to an island. 
And so the testimony that we have of these guys, these aren't guys just making up some story. These men saw and touched and witnessed these things. These men were radically transformed. And so I come to this story not forgetting where I came from. Before Christ, my life was a total mess. And if I showed up at church one of these Easter's when I have the courage, but I probably never will have the courage, I'll show up in a wife beater shirt. And you guys can see all my tattoos out in the glory. And, and uh, you go, oh, pastor. <laughs> like, you know. I came to Christ after resisting evading arrest with the police department after a night of drinking. And I had a friend who met Jesus and started nagging me with him. My life has radically changed since I encountered the living Christ. And my prayer is that for those of you who don't know Jesus, that you would come to a saving relationship with him today. And if you've encountered him, that you wouldn't grow stale in your faith, that you wouldn't have your fire insurance and then just kind of go about your life. Like, God wants your life. And so we come to the story. I have to confess of all the, the gospel accounts, this is I don't want to say it's my least favorite. The one I really like is the Gospel of John because there's so much color, but we've been going through Matthew. And so I'm going to limit myself to sort of sharing the story from Matthew. And if you start examining the various stories, you might go, oh, there's a bunch of inconsistencies here. How they tell the story, it's differently. But the reality is, is they're not inconsistencies. They're, They're different vantage points of the same story. In fact, today, if you were in an interview like an investigator, uh, uh, an officer of the law that's investigating something like a car accident or a crime, and as they start talking to individuals, all of the accounts will be different, but they should sort of paint a picture of one story. The cops I know that if they go into a crime scene and all of a sudden there's like four different people that have word for word exact stories, something's fishy here. Why are all of their stories exactly the same? It's because these guys have collaborated with one another. If you take it to the White House of any administration, I'm not just calling out one or the other. But when you start, when when an incident happens and you start looking at all the various departments, you'll notice the, the same phrase keeps coming up. It's like, what's going on? They said the same thing that, you know, the State Department's saying, the same thing that the White House is saying, that the same thing, but it's just one phrase. And it's like, oh, they're trying to, to present this case, to keep it clear. But in this story, there's all sorts of different angles. These are people that are afraid for their life. And and, and right off the bat, now on the Sabbath, after the Sabbath, before I get too far along, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, now let's sort of remember, remember, this is the Passover season. A few days earlier, Jesus rolls into Jerusalem. He asked the guys, hey, go find a prepare a place for me so we can celebrate the Passover the meal. The Passover meal still celebrated by Jews still to this day, still this week because it follows the lunar calendar. And so they went there to celebrate where they would break bread. They would remember God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. All of the plagues came through and the last plague after Pharaoh wouldn't release the Jewish people. God said, what I want you to do is take a lamb, slaughter it, put the blood on the doorpost. The angel of the Lord's going to come through the night. And if the blood's not there, the firstborn son will be killed. But if the blood is there, the angel will pass over and your sons will be spared. 
And so the Jews celebrate this. They remember. And Jesus on the Last Supper was actually the Passover meal. And he went over the story. And in the midst of the story, he looks at him and he says, this cracker, this juice, this is actually my body. That this Passover meal is now going to be converted to the Lord's Supper because I am the ultimate Passover lamb. And so as he was betrayed, as the trial unfolded, as he was eventually condemned uh, with a whole lot of missing evidence, there was uh, the, the only thing they had against him is that he claimed to be God. And so as he stood on the cross last week, 2,000 years ago, but last week we looked at it, over the six-hour period, the last three hours, significant things began to happen. And I believe things that horrified the witnesses. From 12 to 3, the world went dark. And then somewhere as the lights began to turn on, Jesus cries out, it is finished. An earthquake happens. The veil in the most holy of holies is torn in two, split from heaven to earth. Jesus, we're told, yielded up his spirit, meaning that he gave his life. His life wasn't taken from him. A powerful man, Joseph of Arimathea, came forward to seek Pilate. Joseph was a, a believer. He was also in the Sanhedrin, but he kept his faith in quiet. He goes to Pilate. He says, listen, he's been killed. Let me have the body. Let me give up my family tomb. Let me place his body there. You're done with him. And so Pilate says, go ahead and take the body. And the scriptures tell us that not only was uh, Joseph of Arimathea there preparing the body with spices and I don't want to say herbs, but oils and sort of anointing, sort of the embalming process of the day. We're told that Nicodemus, another high priest from the Sanhedrin, came and, and helped participate with that. They placed the body in the tomb. They sealed the tomb. Uh, day one happens or the, the evening came. In the morning, we're told that the Jews, they're all Jews in the story, so let's not get wrapped up around Jews. The, the religious leaders had sort of an aha moment in the middle of the night. And so they're back at, Nick, they're back at Pontius Pilate's home or his residence, his office. They say, hey, we, we just remembered that this Jesus said that he was going to rise from the grave three days later. We believe that the disciples will come and steal his body. And if they steal his body and start this rumor that he's risen from the dead, this, this second situation is far worse than the first problem that he claimed to be God. And so we need soldiers. You need to do something. And I believe that Pilate looked at him sort of like, you guys are ridiculous. You want me to guard a tomb of a dead man? Not only he's, he's dead, but his flesh has been stripped off his back. He was brutally executed. The whole city's in an uproar. His, his followers are scattered. The, the, the men have, were, were gone from the whole picture. Only John was at the cross. He's like, okay, I'll, I'll send some guards. You make it as, seal it up as tight as you can to seal up that dead guy. Or it's been suggested that he also was saying, guys, if he raises from the dead, there's nothing my guards can do, and your problem is far worse than you think it is. And so now we find ourselves Sunday morning. The language isn't really clear. We don't know if this is pre-dawn, after dawn. It was morning, Sunday. It's the reason that we have church on, on Sundays. Before it was always the Saturdays. But when the Lord rised, raised from the dead, 
worship began to fall on Sundays. So really every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. We, we follow these sort of calendars in our culture, and I'm fine playing with the calendar. Easter, you can't buck Easter, you can't buck Christmas. But, but every Sunday, every day we celebrate the risen Lord. He's alive. And so we're told that Mary Magdalene, this is Mary from Magdala, which is, if you're looking at the Sea of Galilee, it'll be, uh, Capernaum is on the very northern shore. And from your angle, it's to the southwest, just a little bit, Magdala. We know that Mary had, uh, she was possessed by seven demons and Jesus cast the demons out from her. And from that moment, this dear woman followed him and ministered to him throughout the story. We're also told that there was another Mary. Now, uh, we don't know who this is. It's speculated that this is uh, the wife of Clopas, who is the mother of James and Joseph. Matthew only talks about these two women, but if you uh, look at the, the, the whole accounts, we believe that there's probably about five women who showed up at the grave, or the tomb, I should say. Grave paints the wrong image in your mind. And so we're told that these women, from the other accounts, that they were going to the tomb to sort of to continue the uh, placing spices and sort of honoring his body. This is the idea of if you have to be in at midnight, like is that Cinderella? She had to be home by midnight. Let's, so let's just pretend we're all Cinderella. It's about 11.55 p.m. Jesus is crucified. He's placed in the grave or the tomb, excuse me. I'm on the cemetery board, so grave comes very natural to me. This is a, So they get him in there. But then they've got to be home because the Sabbath is starting. It's the Passover Sabbath. And so they get him there. They take care of him. They seal up the, the tomb. Then they all leave and they sort of make arrangements. Let's be here. The first chance we get after the Sabbath is over. And, and, and my, my guess is that they want to continue mourning him. They wanted, we're told that they wanted to continue with the, the, I've never embalmed a body or done spices on a body, but they want to continue the process, which I think was sort of started. They're in a town that is not their home. Remember, they're, they're from Galilee. Imagine going on a vacation and you travel somewhere 80 miles from here. You're up in L.A. and you die in L.A. Now you've got to be buried in L.A. That's like my worst horror, like to be buried in L.A. I'm a San Diegan. Like, don't bury me in L.A., you know. But that's kind of what's going on. They're in Jerusalem, but they're from Galilee. But he died, and so now they've got to bury him there. So verse 2. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. A number of earthquakes had already happened at this point. We On the cross, it is finished. Earthquake. Veil is torn. There seems that there were like these aftershocks from a, a humanistic sort of, you know, just from our senses. These the earthquakes and aftershocks, these seem to be supernatural occurrences that are happening in Jerusalem. And we're told for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat on it. Earthquake happens. Stone is rolled away by an angel, and now he's sitting on it with his coke, you know, just kind of like hanging out. That's not, it doesn't say that, but I'm just kind of imagining this guy like chilling out. And his appearance, we're told, was like lightning, so flashes in the sky, and his clothing was as white as snow, which is hard for us in San Diego to imagine snow. It's white. Because it tells us it was white as snow. I'm thinking like 
white as whitewash in the ocean might be a better illustration for us. But he's bright white, flashes of light, terrifying picture. Notice that when it refers to the angel, that everything is like sort of past tense. So I get that that when the women show up, these things had happened. So they show up to this angel sitting there and the guards in verse four laying on the ground in total terror as if they were dead. The angel said to them in verse five, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. So the angel understands an angel is a messenger throughout the scripture, that it's a God's messenger. God knows that these women are going to appear at the grave, that Jesus is going to be risen there. So the angel is there to basically explain to them what's going on. The stone wasn't rolled away to get Jesus out of the grave. Jesus in his resurrected body, he's no longer bound by his human body. As you read uh, the other accounts following the resurrection, we learn that the disciples were uh, locked in a room, sort of hidden. It reminds me of, uh, uh, you know, back when we had the Chargers and the Raiders would come to town and there'd be the, the King Stallman bail bond commercial. It'd be like the door slamming and about 10 locks on the door. And then it'd be the King Stallman commercial saying, you guys might not be happy about the Raiders coming to town, but we are because they're going to have a lot of business. This, this is their, They are locked in. They're hiding. They're afraid of their lives. And Jesus would just appear in the room. He didn't need to open doors. And so the tomb was opened by the angels so that the ladies and then Peter and John would make their way there. So that they could look in and see that there was no body. The picture behind me actually is if you are able to make the trip to Israel. This is at the garden tomb location. It's actually from inside the tomb. That could be. Where Jesus was. Placed. When you go there it's run by the British and it's a YMCA. Which is actually started as a Christian organization and when you do it they say. The thing that's fascinating about our location here is we have millions upon millions of people that descend on our location, not to see something that's here, but to see something that's not here. So so we don't know if this is the location, but there's a lot of pieces to the puzzle. It's right by Golgotha. Remember, I had that image of this, the school on the screen. It's right at a busy location. There was a well and gardens and there's a tomb and in the tomb, there's two different rooms and there's one piece that was sort of hewn out for a head. So. There's evidence, but we don't know, but there's nothing there. And the angel understands that they are there to see Jesus, to minister to him. And they're able to look in and see that he's not there. And the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. Fear is normal when you encounter the divine. When you encounter some divine being. Now, an angel is a is a created being, not to, be cre- not to be confused with Jesus. But there's sort of a terror that seems to be connected with his uh, meeting this guy. And he says, don't be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus. For he's not here, for he's risen. That line that's inside of the door, it's beautiful. They've, they've tacked that verse onto the door as you're exiting the tomb. He is not here. 
For he has risen just as he said. Come see the place where he is lying. Come inside. See. Have a look around. See for yourselves. We're told that his, his linen cloth uh, was sort of there. And the, the head wrapping was sort of folded up and placed by the side. Now, don't think that this is like a bathrobe. This is, this is like a mummy where you would have been rolled and rolled and rolled. If you were in it, you wouldn't be able to get out of it. The closest thing I can come up with is um, not hazing because that doesn't exist in the Navy. Wink, wink, nod, nod. But as a young Navy guy, I spent many a, a days like wrapped up in duct tape the whole way while other stuff happened to me. And when your limbs are all sort of bound up, you just can't get out of it. And so Jesus is like, it's the process for burial. And so in his humanity, he wouldn't have been able to get out of it. But see, he rose in his divinity that he just got out of the cloth. And I imagine that the cloth just sort of sank down. My story falls apart with the head cloth because it's folded back up. But I, don't, I wasn't there. Nobody was there. And so when I look at this, come and see the place where he's lying. Go tell quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. This verse, verse 7 in particular, well, really the last part of 6 and 7, it always takes me to Denver. I, uh, back in 2001, I was deployed from December of 2000 to June of 2001. Uh, somehow over there, I got it in my mind that I wanted to run my first marathon. And so I ran the treadmill. I was running laps all around the base. And because I was all into running and I lived by the phrase, anything worth doing is worth overdoing. I subscribed to runner's world magazine. And so I'm reading all of these uh, magazines on running and how to prepare for your first marathon. And lo and behold, there's a full page ad for a marathon in Denver. And it said it was the Jesus run marathon. And you could raise money for missionaries. Anyone that you wanted, you just raise money and they would send the money to the missionaries. At the time I was dating Anna, although I didn't realize I was dating her. She told me in hindsight that we were dating then. And, and so we were kind of getting to know each other. And she was this missionary kid who or was, was formerly a missionary kid that I had no idea what that was. But she grew up in Spain. I think, hmm, I can run a marathon and I can sort of impress this girl I kind of like. I'll raise all this money, send it to the missionaries and... And uh, so I got back, and in August of 2001, I flew into Denver. Denver. I, I didn't really notice that part as I was training. <laughs> they call it the Mile High City, apparently. And I remember, like, getting my bags and sort of being a little bit lightheaded, like, whew. What, what was that about? How's this going to work? I've been at sea level training for a marathon on a treadmill, and it's now I'm supposed to run this marathon. And I'll leave the marathon story out of it. But that night, as you check into the hotel, there was, you know, you get your, your free T-shirt and, and your little number for doing the marathon. But they had a bunch of, like, breakout uh, seminars to sort of encourage and share about missions. And I can't remember. I don't remember the conference. I don't remember. I don't remember a lot of the breakout sessions. But I remember I went to this one that I have no idea what the topic was. And it was a missionary with SIM. And he'd spent his whole career in Africa. And the verse that he wanted to talk about was these two verses. And the title of his talk, it was the four verbs 
of missions. Like fascinating. So I sat through there and I was really just trying to like, I'm dating a former or missionary kid and I'm trying to like, you know, trying to like Navy SEAL guy trying to pull, pull off the missionary culture and not really knowing what I was doing. And I'll never forget what he said. He said in verses six and seven, there's seven verbs that describe the gospel and everything. He said, the first two are come see. And he went to share with us that what Jesus wants is nothing more for you to come see, examine the evidence. Because there's a lot of evidence supporting the resurrection. There, there's so much evidence. We like to say, oh, well, um, from a skeptic point of view, that the evidence points towards science. But the reality is, if you're really an honest examination there's just as much, or I believe, but I want to be polite. There's so much more faith required for the the things that science tries to say about uh, subjects, especially concerning creation and where we came from and what does it all mean. And I remember he challenged, like, look at the evidence, go and view. And there's books like Lee Strobel's book. There's, there's evidence that supports the claims of the Bible. You can travel to Israel. You can go and you can, uh, archaeology mostly affirms the things that are found within the scriptures. Now, you can't ever sort of cross, you, faith is always required. There's, there's no way around that. But it says, come see, examine who Jesus is. Dig, uncover the layers. And then once you come to the place where faith is crossed, then the next two words are go tell. So this missionary gave the talk, come see Jesus, go tell about him. And it was probably the most simple message I've ever heard, and I've never forgotten it. That for those of us who know Christ, we've come and seen and we've We've examined and we believe that there's enough evidence that we can place our faith in him. And maybe you're still on that journey and I would encourage you to do the research. It's not blind faith. There's overwhelming evidence. But if you have come to the place where you've accepted Christ as your savior, then the command is to go tell. And next week we'll look at the Great Commission. There is this, for some odd reason, God has chosen those of us who have given our life to him to be his ambassadors, to be a light into the world, and to go forth and to share about the risen Christ. So he says, come see. Go tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see, and behold, I've told you. And so we're told in verse 8 that the two ladies, or the, probably the five of them, they, they left the tomb to obey, to follow, to to go tell the others. Just right away, as to kind of revisit the issue of um, sort of the inconsistencies of the New Testament or, or the accounts. If this was a fraudulent document, if the accounts were really a bunch of guys sort of conspiring to come up with a story, there is no way they would have documented that women were the first to see Christ. During this era, a, a woman's testimony could not have been used in a court of law. Her voice had no merit. But in all of the accounts, they document that it was these women that Jesus appeared to. 
It's not told like somebody who's trying to concoct some story to be believable. It's a story that's told by, by people who want to communicate the truth of what they saw, regardless of the cost that comes to them. And so they say about the women encountering the risen Christ because that's what happened. And so they left the tomb, verse 8, quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to the disciples or to his disciples. Uh, these these two words, fear and great joy, they, they seem in paradox with one another or in tension with one another. Great joy, I understand that, but how does fear fit with great joy? On Friday, we watched the movie Risen. It was There were some graphic scenes. It was told from an angle that was a little bit different of the story than you normally read. I think it follows sort of Matthew's account, especially the last portion that we get to. But, but I love the soldier as he's interviewing these people who had claimed to see the risen Christ. And, and at one scene, the soldier's looking at somebody. I can't remember who it was. But he's like, so he's risen from the grave. Like, what does this mean? And the guy looks at him. He's like, I have no clue what this means. I'm not God. Like, all I know is Jesus was dead and he appeared to us and I touched him. And I, I have no idea what he's doing next. And the guy says, well, can he make him appear again? He's like, no, I'm just a guy. I, he's God. And so they're going with this, this fear, this like, what does this all mean? Because people don't just rise from the dead. Like, I, I understand the skeptic. Pe- people don't die and then come back to life. If you, quote, unquote, die and then you're resurrected again or you're brought back to life, in my mind, you didn't die. We just thought you were dead and then you weren't dead. Because you were just sort of flatlined for a couple of minutes. But when somebody's dead and they're buried, they're dead. They don't, like, it's common sense. And so they see the risen Lord, or they're uh, about to see the risen Lord, and the, the, the grave is gone. What does this all mean? The, the, the Romans are going to be coming after them. But there's great joy in the hope that maybe he is risen. And in verse 9, we're told, and behold, Jesus met them. And Jesus wants to meet you and all of us. He's going out of his way to grab hold of you in your life. And he greeted them and they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. If they're taking hold of his feet, that means they see him and they fall on their face in fear and adoration. That's normal. When you encounter a deity, you fall on your face. And the other accounts were told that they sort of grabbed hold of Jesus and they're kissing him and crying and And at some point, Jesus says, okay, that's enough. I need you to go. Then Jesus said to them in verse 10, do not be afraid. Go and take the word to my brethren. Leave for Galilee. So they're in Jerusalem. Galilee is a good 80 miles. And he says, there they'll see me. Now, Jesus walked down to Jerusalem from Galilee, but I think he's done walking. He's divine now. He's like, you guys go. I'll just meet you up there and I'll appear. There's no need for him to walk anymore. He's risen. He, he's no longer bound by this earthly body that he came. Once he was crucified, the debt was paid. It was paid in full. And now that he rose from the dead, he, he's, he's no longer limited in a way that he was before. And now in verse 11, the scene shifts. We go to the soldiers who were there and we're told Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. 
change of scene. It makes you like, why, why are these guards going to the, the religious leaders? Why did they go to the priest? If we were to rewind the story a little bit, what we would find is that these soldiers were dispatched by Pilate to watch the tomb. But now the very thing which they were watching has disappeared. And to go back to Pilate could result in their death or a serious punishment. And so instead of going to Pilate to explain to Pilate what had happened, they go to the religious leaders and they explain what happened to the religious leaders. And before we sort of unfold the story, don't think that they shared about the lie that they're going to make up. What they shared with the religious leaders is we were there. This angel appeared. The stone got rolled away. We were knocked on our faces. The dead guy was gone. We were there the whole time. These are men who are horrified. And so they were going to the priest to find sort of security. And so the priest here, they say, have to assemble the rest of the crew. And in verse 12, we read, and when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were still asleep. Their greatest fear was realized back in Matthew 27, verse 64. Remember before Pilate, what they said, therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he is risen from the dead and the last deception will be worse than the first. So their greatest fears are all realized when these soldiers come to him and say, he's risen, he's gone. And verse 14, they continue to sweeten the deal. And they say, if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. So they buy them off. They convince him to give false testimony. And they say, if Pilate gets upset at you, we have enough influence over Pilate that will keep you safe. We don't really have time to go back to, to Luke chapter 3. It's actually ahead of us. But in the beginning of the story, when John the baptizer is calling out the nation for their sins, we're told in Luke 3.14 that there was a group of soldiers that they came forward, they were baptized, and then they approached John and they said, what, what now? What about us? Do we need to lay down our arms? Do we need to walk away from Rome? Do we need to follow after you? And John basically says, you need to be, number one, content with your wages. Don't extort people for money and tell the truth. And so clearly these aren't the same soldiers that encountered John the Baptist. And and these guys are clearly not content with their wages. They take money. They were able to be bought off and then they're going to go and they're going to take a lie. The the, the worst uh, thing to be an authority like that and to use the authority to, to deceive others. And so they took the money and they did as they had been instructed And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Clearly, the missing body was a big deal. Um, The movie that we watched, it was a little like I thought Grace was going to come watch the movie, but then we're like, ah, it's probably not okay. I hadn't seen the movie. But following the account of the resurrection Christ from these soldiers, I I really love that they sort of follow this account because the missing body was a big deal. 
All they needed to do was discover the body, to find the body, to see where they were hiding. And if they could do that, then they could prove that he was still there and the claims were not true. And so they're going out there basically trying to anybody that had been killed within the last week. They were looking for Jesus and it came with some hard scenes. But, but it came with the panic. These guys were not stupid. We seem to think that people 2,000 years ago were not bright. And all I encourage you to do is to, to, to go to any sort of ancient city. Go look at, go look at the, uh, the pyramids in Egypt. Go look at the, what remains of the temple. And all of these things were built before John Deere and Caterpillar. Like, how did they, do, I mean, how did they come up with these? Because they were, sm- they were humans and they were smart. So it's not like they were deceived. They could come up with a body. But the problem is they couldn't come up with a body because he was risen. It amazes me what people will go through to sort of deny the evidences that God provides for the risen Christ. And I think a lot of people don't believe because we see that people are hurt by religion. Clearly, in this story, the religious leaders are, the, are clearly the bad guys. The, the religious guys aren't the apostles. They're, they're, these guys are just fishermen. They're common men who'd spent time with Jesus. The, the religious guys were the worst of religion, and it still continues to this day. We all have doubts. We all have fears. It, it's easy to say that, oh, well, religion is a, is a, is a crutch. It's, only, it's good for those who are weak. And trust me, I run in circles that say that all the time. And I say, oh, it's not a crutch. It's like a life support system. Because <laughs> without Jesus, I'm nothing. But when I look at this story and all of the accounts, it's interesting to me that no individual actually saw Jesus going from being dead to alive. Everybody has to deal with the resurrection by faith. That these women who eventually saw Jesus, they had to sort of come to terms with like, well, was he really dead? Like he's alive now. They obviously, they understood that he was crucified, that he was killed, that he was buried, that he'd been there for three days and that he'd risen. There's no way we can sidestep faith. God presents the gospel to us. That Jesus died according to the scriptures for your sins, that he was buried and that he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says that over and over, according to the scriptures, that it was prophesied. And that we have to come to terms with do we believe. Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ didn't rise from the dead, that our faith, it's, it's foolishness. There's, there's no reason for us to be here. But he ends with the truth that Christ did raise from the dead. And then over in Ephesians, if you'll turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, if you have your Bibles. How does this all work? See, today we looked at sort of the, the history, the, the story of what happened. And you can know all the facts about Christianity and be as lost as the guy who's never heard about Jesus. Just knowing the facts, being able to go through the, the Easter story, that doesn't save you. But in Ephesians 1.13, we're told, In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, 
That's the death, burial, and resurrection. Just knowing it, hearing it, that doesn't save you. He goes on to saying, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit. So the facts are brought to life, produce a saving work in your life when you believe. I'm going to end with a story. When I was in seminary or Bible college, I can't remember which one, there was a guy, a pastor, big old guy played rugby. I try not to say his name, but he was a character. He'd started Bible college or seminary. I think it must have been seminary. He'd started and stopped multiple times. And so like over the course of my time in seminary, I think he'd accomplished about two classes. And, but he, he would start and stop and sort of come back. And, and I was in one of my latter classes, and I see he's in the class of him. I say, oh, hey, Joe, I'll call him Joe. You're back. You're going to give another shot. He's like, yeah, there's a guy in my church that's going to fund me to go to seminary. Everything's paid for. Computer and everything. I got a MacBook Pro. I'm set. He bought everything. All I got to do, and he's turning it on for the first time. He's like, the teacher comes in. I'm going to take notes, but I just need to know how to like open up Microsoft Word. And I said, brother, that's a Mac. That's a MacBook. Microsoft Word doesn't, they use a different program. He's like, no, 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 no. It's, I was told that Microsoft Word was on here. So long story short, we, we kind of, Click, click through, and I find, sure enough, that Microsoft Word, he had, in, had it installed on his computer, and Microsoft Word is now opening for the very first time. He's getting really excited, because this time he's serious about seminary. But then after Microsoft Word opens up, and he's about to type, this pop-up window opened, and he's like, oh, no. He's like, we have a problem. And I was like, well, what's going on, buddy? Joe, I think I called him. And uh, he's like, it needs my credit card. Microsoft Word is here, but I got to pay for it. I'm like, yeah, that's how it works. You got to buy the software. So then he's out there. He's got these big old monkey hands, rugby player, and he's like kind of punching in his stuff. And I'm like, you just gave me a sermon illustration for the rest of my life. See, Jesus died for all of us on the cross. But it's not activated until you enter your credit card information. No, (laughs) your credit card information It's faith that you believe that what he did was for you. And it's as simple as that. And Father, we do thank you that salvation is by faith alone. It's by your grace. We thank you that you are a merciful God. We thank you, Lord, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, I pray for those who are still wrestling with the evidence, wrestling through the the facts of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would help them to see the evidence that Christ did come and fulfill many prophecies, that he indeed died and that he indeed rose again and that he conquered death. Father, for those of us who have come to saving faith in Christ, I ask that you would help us um, to not grow stale in our faith. May day by day we encounter you as a living and true God. We thank you, Lord, that you pursue us. We love you, Lord, that we can celebrate the risen Christ on this day. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.